I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thank you for joining Cauldron Podcast. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a very special guest. We've got Dr. Dr. James, Dr. Carl James. I keep making the same mistake where I say James is your first name, but it's Dr. Carl James of the Australian War Memorial. Uh, He is the author of the book Kokoda Beyond the Legend. Well, the editor of Kokoda Beyond the Legend. And uh, it is the main source I'm using for this upcoming episode on the Kokoda Track or Kokoda Trail. I've weirdly walked into that discussion without knowing. As an American, um, Kokoda is fascinating story, but not super well-known uh, in the USA. But the debate between trail and track seems to actually be a thing. Um Dr. James, if you could just introduce yourself and give us a, a little background on yourself, and then we can dive right into uh, to the immortal story of Kokoda. Oh, well, thank you for having me. So my name is Dr. Carl James. I'm the head of military history at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. And for your American listeners who may not know, so the Australian War Memorial is a unique institution because we are three things in one. We are a war memorial to Australia's war dead. So that 102,000 Australians who died from the Sudan in 1885 all the way through to a recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we have a very strong commemorative focus. So we, a, a, we are a memorial, we are a museum, and we're also an archive because we have this sense of commemoration through understanding. So you can come to the Australian War Memorial. It's a little bit like the uh, National World War II Museum in New Orleans or the National World War I Museum in Kansas City three things in one and I head up a team of historians and we all have our own different specialties for me it is Australia's involvement in the second world war and and why the second world war or world war ii well for me because it's a big one (laughs) uh it was my grandparents war it when I was growing up was listening to their stories and their experiences both on my dad's side and my mum's side of the family and it was such a momentous tremendous event and I say tremendous in the sense of scale, scope, horror, and devastruction, uh, devastru- devastation, that it just it has always captivated my attention. So I was able to study history at university. And uh, 15 years ago, I took up a job at the Australian War Memorial on a six-month contract at a very low level. Um, and then, yeah, a decade and a half later, they can't get rid of me. So I feel very lucky. And I also tell this story too because I like to think and proof that you can get a job working as a historian. You are giving a lot of hope to a lot of our listeners, especially younger people out there right now. They're finding it hard to break into the field. So that's very cool. Oh, man. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's 2020 would be a very tough year for any college student, for any recent graduate, uh, any museum studies kid. It's pretty hard. And then moving into 2021, hopefully things will be better. But I am proof you can get a job. you got to hustle. Uh, and there's so many of us out there who do this stuff for free. Podcasting, Twitter, social media stuff, Battlefield Tour, Battlefield Guide. 
you know, um, using social media is a great platform to share our stories and passion to connect. But there are those jobs out there. Sometimes you've got to work hard, sometimes a bit of luck, um, but they do happen. So I'm very mindful that I feel I have the one of the, the best jobs in the world working as a military historian, talking to people about Australia's involvement in the Second World War. So thank you for having me. Well, so you hear that, uh, you hear that kids out there, if you uh, try hard, a little bit of luck and hustle, and you could very well get that job at uh, whatever museum it might be, telling the stories that we find important, which uh, brings us, I think, to, to what we're talking about today, Kokoda. In the U.S., we are fascinated by D-Day. We are, uh, I think there's a kind of resurgence of interest in the Eastern Front um, very, very popular to talk about the aircraft carriers and the kamikaze of the Pacific, but rarely do uh, do Americans kind of dive into what the allies to us were doing during the Pacific War. So you don't see much about Burma. You don't see much about uh, the various islands and, and what the... Um, what the other allied forces were doing. And Kokoda is kind of a, it's a funny thing here. It's like, you know, a, a true World War II fanatic when you say Kokoda and they're like, oh, let me tell you about this book I read. Or, oh, yes, 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 I know all about it. You can kind of weed through uh, some of the chaff of, of historians or World War II fans if they know what Kokoda is. What does Kokoda mean to, or what is the Kokoda track or trail? Uh, and, and if you could explain the distinction, because I know a lot of Americans are going to be like, what the hell is he saying that for? Um, but where does that kind of, where does Kokoda sit in the firmament of Australian battles? Most Americans think of Australians, Anzacs as these weird superheroes that show up whenever there's a, uh, a world war and they pull a Gallipoli or, you know, they just show up and, and save the day or pull the English or the British ass out of the fire kind of thing. Yeah, that's a great question because it really taps into the changing nature of commemoration, but also probably war remembrance uh, within Australia, but also more widely. So from an American point of view, or really even a non-Australian point of view, certainly from a Japanese perspective, Kokoda was pretty much a fringe for a fringe campaign. Uh, it is unique in that it is a very strong Australian story. So back in 1942, the territory of Papua was an Australian territory. The campaign itself on the ground was fought uh, solely by Australian troops as well as our Papuan allies and um, Papuan soldiers and Papuan carriers. That's so a strong Australian fighting part of the story. The high command, too, was also Australian. So you have the tactical leaders of Australian uh, up through brigade division and then the, the within New Guinea force headquarters, the high command is being directed by an Australian officer, which is somewhat unique. Yes, you do have MacArthur who, or General Douglas MacArthur who's arrived in the scene a few months earlier as the overall theatre commander. But the, the conduct of the campaign was conducted by Australian senior officers fought by Australian soldiers, fought on Australian territory, fighting against the Japanese enemy who had invaded, and the strongest motivation for Australian soldiers to keep fighting during these miserable conditions along the Kokoda Trail was to stop the Japanese advancing onto Port Moresby and then onto Australia. So it's a very strong Australianness that makes Kokoda resonate with Australian people. 
But it wasn't always the case. Uh, during the Second World War, Kokoda was only one of many campaigns that Australians fought during uh, during that conflict. Keep in mind that Australian forces, we went to war on the 3rd of September 1939. Australian airmen who were in Britain at the time were, were immediately flying into action. So for Australia, you know, ours is a six-year war. Um, we're the third country we went to, you know, we went to war straight away. And we have Australian airmen, sailors and soldiers fighting all over the globe. So Kokoda was only one conflict. At the end of the Second World War, it was actually the rats of Tobruk who had held the port city of Tobruk in Libya in 1941, who were really uh, the, the celebrated heroes of the Second World War. And it's not until about the 1980s uh, and the late 80s, but really the 1990s, that Kokoda sort of becomes quite prominent. And it's because it is this very strong Australianness. Whereas at Tobruk uh, and later on at El Alamein, Australian soldiers are fighting and participating in key battles. And I would argue that our involvement in El Alamein is probably the most significant land fighting that we took place, that we contributed to. But there we're fighting alongside the British Commonwealth efforts, and it's very easy for the Australian story to be lost as part of that wider British wealth, British Commonwealth story. Whereas at Kokoda, it's all about, pretty much all about the Aussies. And that is why it kind of um, resonates more than, say, either uh, later New Guinea battles or into Borneo in, say, 43 or 45. So it's a very strong Australianness. And we see that played out because uh, also happening in the 1990s, there was Prime Minister Paul Keating, the Australian Prime Minister. He was pushing a very strong Republican agenda. Um, so it, it, it supported his notion. So he was kind of talking it up. And you have people actually going to the battlefields and making the track for themselves. And what we've seen with Australian historiography and what is important to us, it's the campaigns and battles, whether it be Gallipoli, the Western Front, uh, Long Tan, Vietnam, um, and now Kokoda in, in Papua New Guinea. If you can go there yourself and if you can walk the trail, walk the track, get some sort of an experience, and that helps um, the public memory, people engage with it. And Kokoda itself is, is a deceptively simple campaign. It only ran for four months from July through to no, uh, November 1942. And it has a, a really clear beginning and middle and end from an Australian perspective. The Japanese land, they make their way across the Yama Stanley Range. They're eventually stopped at Imitra Ridge or Yuriabaiwa. And that's in September. And then from September through November, they fall back and the Australians push them. So you've got to, well, they really, the Australians follow up. So it's a pretty simple story, easy to comprehend or easy to get your head into. But what we've also seen now, it's not so much the detailed battlefield narratives, it's not the individual commanders, the tactical decisions. It's what Australia has, what the Kokoda Trail has come to mean. And what we've seen in, in those diggers and the way they've been celebrated are these notions, all these attributes of, you know, courage, mateship, endurance, sacrifice. Because uh, you can pull these qualities out and they fit very neatly into the Australian type, our Australian national identity. So you've got a lot of things happening in that Kokoda space that you just don't get when you're thinking about, say, the Battle of Slater's Knoll in Bougainville in 1945 or the landing of Ballypappin in the 1st of, July, um, 1st of July 1945 as well. So it's really, there are too many things happening going on, whereas Kokoda seems to be quite simple and that's partly why people have latched onto it. And that's also why you will get that debate over Kokoda Track versus Kokoda Trail. Um, often it's being set up in a nationalistic point of view. Now, from my perspective, far too much time, paperwork, ink, abusive emails <laughs> has been spent on, is it the Kokoda Track or is it the Kokoda Trail? 
Like that's the only thing that people seem to care about and get engaged with. And I find it incredibly frustrating. One, because I get abused by it and trolled. Um, but more to the point, it's people, I think, by getting caught up in this debate around the name, it's taken away from what the Australians, the Papuans, New Guineans, as well as the Japanese and even the Americans later on, what they experienced and how they suffered. You know, so we are debating what we call it rather than thinking about those men who fought, suffered and died along the Kokoda Trail, rightly or wrongly, from your different perspective. Now, the challenge is that before the campaign, before the war, that track across the Owen Stanley Range didn't have a name. Like it was just one of many foot tracks that was used um, by the Papuans themselves to get from point A to point B. It also became a mail trail um, because there was a small strain Australian uh, Akakota Plateau. There's a, sta a station, a mail station. There was a, a mining community nearby, Muvo Valley. Oh, sorry, in Yoda Valley. So there was a mining establishment there and some plantations. So people walking backwards and forwards. It's just a track. It doesn't have a name. At some point, uh, the term Kokoda Road was used very early on in the piece. Um, at other times, it referred to it, and as the campaign developed, more and more people are going up and down this track because you're getting now thousands of guys going backwards and forwards. So sometimes it's referred to as a track, sometimes it's referred to as a trail, um, but it didn't have a formal name. And then after the war, when you have a thing called the Battle Honours Nomenclature Committee. So within the British Commonwealth and within Australia, you have all the officers coming together thinking, okay, what are we going to celebrate? Which units get a battlefield, um, a battle honour? And they came up with the term Kokoda Trail within certain dates for the Australian units. So that was kind of informalised. So those units such as the 39th Battalion, the 2nd 14th Battalion, for example, who fought along that, displayed heroism and gallantry, they received a unit um, award as the Kokoda Trail. And so they adopted that term. Um, you then have the, and that's kind of used post-war. And then in, 19, in early 1970s, the government in P, Papua New Guinea, they formally gazette that route across the mountains as the Kokoda Trail. And I just use air quotes then. The flip side <laughs> is that the term within Australia, the term trail is often seen to be an Americanism. And so there's this pushback saying, oh, no, General Douglas MacArthur invented the Kokoda Trail as a name to, to boost up the Americans and to play down the Australian involvement, whereas the Australian name, or the Aussie name, the Aussie word, would be track. <laughs> so. Well, I, I hate that I entrapped you in explaining that and taking time to discuss it, but I can't imagine the amount of time you must spend on it because I've been covering Kokoda for about a week now in social media, and I've received more emails, DMs, and comments about whether or not it's a track or a trail than I did about whether or not the bombing of Dresden was an appropriate action by the Allies. Like, more people find this uh, minutiae to be fascinating and, and debate-worthy than the firebombing of a city, which I find wild. But um, let's move on from that just so that we don't to you know, use up any more resources uh, or air talking about that. But I think what's interesting that you kind of touched on there for a moment and what I've started to really, as I've been digging in with the research, kind of uh, peeling back a lot is it is interesting to me that Kokoda is a lot like the Battle of Britain, where it seems to be uh, 
a, a national, like a nationally identifying moment or people when they look back at their perfect self or their perfect uh, generation, the sacrifice and the willing to endure terrible uh, circumstances and all that. And the moment of crisis when the Japanese were at the very, you know, uh, doorstep, uh, Kokoda stands there kind of like Great, uh, Great Britain did during, or London specifically during the Blitz. Um, it seems to be that kind of moment in time. Is that a truth? You know, is that a, a historical reality or is that us going and looking back and, and kind of rosy, uh, rosy glasses, seeing things as, as we like to dramatize them instead of, of what was really happening? Yeah, I think that is a really perfect analogy because you have that blending of a an imagined uh, assumption of what the past was like where you have, so in, in the Battle of Britain, it's Britain standing alone. Uh, for Australia and Kokoda, it's pretty much Australia standing alone. This is our darkest moment. This is our darkest hour and it's all on us. Now, it doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of the situation. It certainly doesn't reflect the US involvement in the whole Pacific campaign or Southwest Pacific area but it's how we like to imagine ourselves. So why, one of the reasons why does it work, again, 1942, the darkest year for the Allies, the Japanese were smashed through Southeast Asian Pacific, seeing it, well, the Japanese, they've already landed in parts of New Guinea. So in early January with the fall of Rabaul on 23rd of January, 1942. So again, it's the Japanese are already in our backyard you have the fall of Singapore on the 15th of February, which was the worst British defeat in, in British military history. With the fall of Singapore, you also have a little subsequently um, Timor, Java, or Timor, Ambon, and later on Java falling in addition to rebels. So you have 22,000 Australians become prisoners of the Japanese. Um, four days after the bomb, after the fall of Singapore, you have the bombing of Darwin for the very first time. So the war for Australia goes from a conflict that, that was being fought in the Mediterranean, in North Africa, at the start of the war, say in 1940 and 41, all of a sudden to a war that's being fought in our own backyard, both literally and figuratively, because the war is now on our doorstep. And it's very alarming, very concerning, because Australia is a vast continent. And while we've been already actively engaged in this war for two or three years, all of our trained forces are overseas. So you have our airmen serving with the RAF in the um, Bomber Command, for example. You have our experienced soldiers there in the Middle East. Now, they're on the way to come back to Australia, but it's still going to take several months. And you also have the Royal Australian Navy, which was um, operating in the Medi mainly in the Mediterranean, as well as the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. There's also this great concern thinking, well, what's the United States going to do? So from February and into early March, it really seemed that Australia was alone. It's not until General Douglas MacArthur arrives in March of 42, about middle of the month, from the Philippines. And with MacArthur's arrival, he's very much celebrated as a saviour of Australia. Now, MacArthur talked that image up himself. Um, but, Famously. <laughs> well, you know, it's how he rolled. Um, but... From our point of view, it was great, and Australian politicians thought, oh, great, and they described MacArthur's arrival as a tonic because with MacArthur coming, with that profile, with his lobbying, it meant that his American forces would have to come to Australia um, in large numbers. So we weren't going to have to fight the Japanese thrust alone. But it'll still take several months, and the fallout from that means that for those small number of forces who initially deployed to Port Moresby in the middle of 1942, now keep in mind Port Moresby had been a military backwater, they were very concerned 
that the Japanese are going to try to take Port Moresby with an amphibious landing. Uh, and so all their defences and preparations were really geared up towards to stop a Japanese attack from the sea, hadn't spent a lot of time preparing about the back door, about this possibility of an overland advance along the Kokoda Trail, along the Owen Stanleys. Uh, so they were in a pretty weak spot initially. And from MacArthur and the Allied, other Allied senior commanders, uh, they needed to build up and consolidate Australia first, see what the Japanese were going to do. And so there's not this big influx of reinforcement to, reinforcements to um, Port, Port Moresby or to Papua, or even WOW, where we also have a small number of Australian troops still fighting against the Japanese. So it, there's lots of things happening, lots of things going on. Um, and it is that imagined sense of us... Australians like an underdog story, and Kokoda sum, sums it up very well. There's this notion the Japanese were better trained than our guys, that there are more numbers than there were more Japanese soldiers involved in the campaign than the Australians, which isn't necessarily true. Um, you know, the, the Japanese were equipped jungle fighters, which again, especially trained jungle fighters, which isn't really true. So there's a whole bunch of myths associated with this story as well. But uh, our plucky underdogs and that resiliencenness sort of stuck it to the end. Now, the flips, and so that's why it is this imagined sense of Australian values, Australian attributes, doing it for ourselves. But it is imagined because it doesn't take into account the wider strategic um, part of the war. So why the Japanese making an overland advance on, to Port Moresby? It's because they've suffered a, a big naval defeat, first at Coral Sea, and now while there was a very small Australian contribution, it was largely conducted by the United States Navy. So you have the defeat at Coral Sea in May, um, and then later on in Battle of Midway in June, the Japanese forces are decisively defeated. defeated. So from Australian point of view, we're talking up Kokoda, but we're not really giving enough attention to Coral Sea or Midway and certainly Guadalcanal, which was the other parallel campaign which runs at this time, is almost, I won't say overlooked, but it's certainly understudied and under um, its significance hasn't really been fully addressed to Kokoda and the Papuan story. Why is Guadalcanal important? Because from the Japanese, they've advancing into the southwest pacific area along two axes so they've taken Rabaul at the start of the year they want to get port moresby because they want to take off um cut australia off from new guinea and then the united states but the japanese are also advancing through the solomon island chain so that means they capture bougainville run down the solomon islands and they want to get to guadalcanal guadalcanal is much more important than say the australia what the japanese are doing in in papua and so during the course of 1942 as our guys are fighting along the Kokoda Trail from August, you've got the US forces becoming increasingly more committed in Guadalcanal. And it's in by September, the Japanese commanders in Rabaul are saying, we've got to pull back from our, say, General Hori and the South Seas force in along the Kokoda Trail. You need to pull back to Buna. We're going to reinforce all of the Japanese forces and we're going to concentrate on Guadalcanal because that's going to be more um, key. That will be key. And so that's why the Japanese, partly why the Japanese forces come back across the mountains is because of that pivot to Guadalcanal. Likewise, General MacArthur and to a lesser extent General Sir Thomas Blame of the Australian commander, but certainly from Blame, uh, sorry, MacArthur's point of view, when he's sitting in his office in Melbourne and then later on Brisbane, looking at what's happening within the Southwest Pacific area, he too is also focusing on Guadalcanal. He realises that that will be key to the Japanese. And so one of the reasons he doesn't um, quickly reinforce Port Moresby is because he's like, well, the Japanese need to reinforce Guadalcanal. Surely they will realise that's more important. So we'll hang back a bit. 
but he's overtaken by events. And so there is this then subsequently a bit of a panic. And we do get this rush of forces into New Guinea, say, from August and September. Um, I mean, that's a much more of a bigger picture. But it does show that from an Australian point of view, we, we will talk up and we'll celebrate and we will um, not praise, but we will focus on and emphasise Kokoda. But in the scheme of things, it means we don't have a greater understanding of the bigger strategic picture. So I wouldn't feel bad if you're talking to you know colleagues overseas and they may have heard of Kokoda but don't really fully appreciate it because from your Australian point of view, most many people here won't have known of, say, they may know the name of Coral Sea and Midway but won't twig how it connects to Kokoda and they certainly don't get the, the outcome of the fighting Guadalcanal was really key to um, Kokoda's point of view. So there's an element of parochialism, I think, in some ways. Um, but, I mean, we, we have seen that so much over the last few years when history is now becoming important, you know, with Brexit, they're reimagining the Battle of Britain, for example, um, and in places all over the world, you have this a storytelling is being reinvented and reinterpreted for then contemporary national needs. So it's why history, I think, is really exciting, but also quite important because these are the facts. This is the significance. But then you'll see it and being spun around into different debates, different discussions, um, and you know, being first nationalised, but now I think you see history being weaponized. All of a sudden, in the last five, six years, we see history become an active, uh, uh, an active science again, where now we're, we're reimagining and reassessing and, and reconfiguring how things actually were instead of, in, in one way, it's kind of a good thing because we want to be telling the story and it's important that we, we acknowledge what happened as long as we talk about the reality and the truth of what was happening. Uh, and, and, and really it comes down to the, the individuals and the stories that they have. And for me, I think um, one of the amazing things about the Australian War Memorial, I haven't been able to visit yet, but that is on my list of places to go. Uh, and one of the things that's amazing about the story of Kokoda is you have so many personalized stories and, and firsthand accounts and, and people uh, that you can kind of uh, quote and reference, what was it like or, or what is it like when you're going through these stories and reading them? And, and I, I, Because what's interesting to me is that on the Australian War Memorial website, you can go and, and uh, kind of deposit or search for a family member or bring uh, a journal or whatever it might be and, and add it to the archive. How often do you see these being deposited? Obviously, now with COVID, I'm sure um, that is slowing even more than it already was. Is that are you still seeing a regular deposit of the Kokoda stories? Yeah, we still are actively collecting for the collection. I mean, there's too many collections there, um, but we take on, for example, letters, diaries, uh, filmed interviews. There's been a bit of a, a oh, as you can imagine, there's been a bit of a change. You know, the Second World War was 80, well, uh, this is the 80th anniversary of then, so 1941. So it's a big space in time. And we are still collecting and building up our collection now for Iraq and Afghanistan. So our recent veterans. Um, a big part of mm-hmm. a tradition of Australian military history, and this in many ways goes back to Charles Bean, who was the um, official historian during the First World War. There's an emphasis in many ways on the individual experience. So the individual, the experiences of individual soldiers and officers. 
So from Kokoda, for example, you have people like Bruce Kingsbury. Bruce Kingsbury, well, he fought with the 2nd 14th Battalion. Um, he went into action in Sarava. Uh, Isarava is one of those key early actions during the campaign. Um, uh, the Japanese are surrounded the battalion's position. It, it looks like they're about to break through. They do break through at one point. Bruce Kingsbury gets up with a brain like machine gun, um, shoots down various Japanese soldiers, uh, but in and in doing so, allows his position to stabilise so his men aren't overrun, or his mates aren't overrun, but then he's shot down, um, he's killed in action. Subsequently, he's posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross, which is Australia's highest, or the Commonwealth's highest gallantry award. Um, so you have stories when telling Kokoda, you talk about you talk about Bruce Kingsbury. Uh, we tend to talk about Charlie, Charlie McCullum. He was a corporal. He was a, he was in the same battalion as Kingsbury, the second fourteenth. And in many ways, Charlie McCullum, McCullum, he was just like a soldier, soldier. So the, a few moments after Kingsbury's action, later on the 29th of August, um, the battalion is being swamped by the Japanese. Charlie's there with his light machine gun. He's covering his mates with drawing. He's on the track. He's digging in. He's firing his, his, light, his brain light machine gun. He's seen um, his mates fall back. He's told, come back, fall back. He's still in his weapon pits. The Japanese surround him. They're pulling on his webbing, so like the where he's got his pouches for ammunition and stuff. Yeah. He's beating them off with his fists. He's still firing his Bren light machine gun. He's wounded, picks up another weapon, keeps firing with his other hand, just like blazing away. He makes his way back to the track. Everyone's thinking, whoa, that was pretty intense. Like that was intense. And then a few days later, as it continues, because the first part of the story is the Australians withdrawing, make one stand, they overwhelm, push back, and they fall another. Uh, See, so uh, a few days after Isaravi, you get the Battle of Brigade Hill, and this is when the 21st Brigade Headquarters, that's so the equivalent to a regimental, a US regimental headquarters, is overwhelmed, surrounded. Um, their lines are cut off. And again, at one point during the action, Charlie McAllen has to lead a charge. They know. Well, they're pretty likely that it's the suicidal charge, uh, but Charlie runs forward, leads his man, he's cut down and he's killed in action. He's subsequently awarded a, a Distinguished Conduct Medal um, for his actions at Isarava as well as Brigade Hill. So we can tell those stories really quite well. Uh, and there's also, ah, there's any number of stories. So we tend to focus on those yeah. individuals. You've got Brig Brigadier Arnold Potts, who was the commander of the 21st Brigade at that time. He's subsequently relieved during the command, um, during the campaign. So it makes a lot of... We have a tradition of talking and focusing on the individuals and telling about their individual experiences, which is great storytelling. In some ways, the downside of Australian, that approach to Australian military history is that we tend to miss the strategic um, and we certainly miss the allied perspectives or even the, the enemy perspectives. So one of the things that's really missing in our stories of Kokoda is the Japanese perspective. Now, partly that's because... Oh, I'll go back a little bit. So we have, we can, we do have this approach and tradition of writing about Australians um, really well and individuals. Partly we can do that because we have a good collection of source material. So you have letters and diaries. Um, one of my favourite diaries is a guy from George Moat. He was a First World War veteran and he went with the 39th Battalion again during the early part of the campaign. He has a diary. He We kept a diary. The diary was tiny. It's the size of like a pocketbook pencil and in that as he's riding along the Dakota Trail and he had a 
he used to just run every day. And at the start of the campaign, he's talking about the conditions. He just describes it as hills and yet more hills. And he was riding at night. He was riding under his ground sheet. Um, he had a candle. And he can, because later on is this company material. And uh, basically, he's writing his diary. And you can see he burnt his watch because he was underneath the ground sheet by the candle, just trying to fill in his diary. Uh, and it was so close because you couldn't see, reveal any light because you don't want to be tracked by the Japanese. He burned his watch while writing out this diary. It's a great little diary. Um, he survives that campaign, but then later on he's killed at Buna. We had that story because the family donated the, his letters and diaries to the Memorial's collection. Uh, we also have official reports, so war diaries, so the unit diaries kept by the commanders. Now, the original ones for Kokoda are actually destroyed during the campaign, so they're written retrospectively, and you have people like Ralph Honor, who was the who took on command of the 39th Battalion. Um, he also wrote, wrote this great account of the fighting in Disarava, you know, where he describes the 39th Battalion who'd been in action at that point for several weeks, already digging in and they dig in in this rather using their um their helmets their bayonets and their fingers just digging in and then once the jap when the japanese come for that first attack at isarava now he beat they're beaten off using their um, brain gun and rifle butt with their rifle butt and with their fists like so we have some really great evocative accounts from the australian perspective and they come to us through like the army records section collected them at the time like given to families and and the like but the big gap as i mentioned before was the gap in japanese sources now from the japanese perspective you have the um south seas force or south seas detachment depending on the translation and the main groups of those were the 144th infantry regiments and the 41st infantry regiments um, there are also various other subunits but from the Japanese point of view, they land at Buna, around Buna and Gona on the 21st of July, make their way across the Owen Stanleys, then force back. Uh, and then you move into that beachhead battles around Buna, Gona and San Ananda, um, which are incredibly bloody, um, vicious fighting around the northern beaches. But from a Japanese perspective, not a lot of Japanese soldiers survive. <laughs> and so those who do did survive Kokoda, um, then fight in the beachhead battles, and if any of those survived, then they evacuated to New Guinea where they fought the rest of the war. So you don't get the same number of first-hand Japanese accounts. There were a handful of survivors. Um, there are some written records that were captured by the Australian forces during the campaigns, and so they're in translated from an intelligence point of view. Um, but you just don't get that same level of Japanese source material um, to tell their perspectives. There are, I mean, there are a few. There's some regimental commanders, um, and there's a very good book written by Peter Williams on the Kokoda myth. Now, it's a bit controversial, some of his conclusions, but he was able to translate Japanese records and sources, so you can get that conversation um, between the two perspectives. And the other group who really more work needs to be done, and but now possibly too late, are the Papuans themselves. So yeah. they were, you know, this is Papuan land. You've got two language groups, the Karari, who took up from Port Moresby, and they cover most of the Owen Stanley range. And then uh, the other language group or the other tribe, the other one talk is the Orokaiva. And they're on the northern beaches around Boonagona, and they gave up to uh, Kokoda, is their traditional lands or their country. Now, they tend to feature in Australian records and films. So you see these referred to as the carriers, the guides, the scouts, um, the fuzzy wuzzy angels. So when the Papuans are represented in Australian sources, it's usually as the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels. Um, now, this was a term of endearment. It was because the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels with the Fuzzy Wuzzy hair, it came from a 
um, a poem by an Australian engineer, Sapper Bert Batos, or Bertos, and he was really moved by the care of the Papuan carriers. So if you've got a stretcher case, if you're wounded along the Dakota Trail, there was no air evacuations at the early point. You either had to walk out yourself. Um, there's an account of one man who was badly wounded, but he crawled across the Owen Stanleys because he didn't want to receive assistance. He crawled on his hands and knees to get out. Um, but most of the wounded stretcher cases were carried out on Papillon um, carriers. So you had about four to six carriers per, per stretcher. And the Papillons themselves received this great reputation of being very mindful, very caring of the Australians, hence they're referred to as angels. And because they had, you know, Papillon hair, um, fuzzy wuzzy. <laughs> So it was a term that was picked up during the war. It was used as, yes, it's um, you know racist at the time and certainly racist today, but it came from a good place. And it's a name that's been adopted by the Papuans themselves. So when we're talking about Papua, it's but it's always this one stereotype that this one trope, we don't really get a lot of strong Papuan experiences. And when they are referred to, usually in Australian records, you might get a first name, but there's no real village association and there's not much, there's very little detail. Um, the one man who people would have seen is probably Raphael Ambari. So at the end of the Kokoda campaign, when they move into these beachhead battles, um, particularly in the fighting around Boona, there's a very famous photograph of an Australian soldier. He's wounded. He's walking wounded. He has a shirt. He has a bandage over his eye. Um, he's not wearing pants yeah. for some reason. But he's being led through high kunai grass by a, by a native because that's how it's described at the time. Now, that man, and that's come to – it was a great photograph taken by George Silk. Um, it was circulated during the war and then afterwards. And now that man was later on identified as being Raphael Ambari. And so he then became the embodiment of a fuzzy wuzzy angel. And um, in this in the 70s and the 1980s, he became very active to support um, the rights of Papuans and New Guineans to, for greater acknowledgement for their war service. Um, but in many ways, while we'll know we know his name and his experiences, the thousands of Papuan carriers have not really or because they were par- they were carriers, but they were scouts. They fought with the Papuan Infantry Battalion. Um, they lived under occupation. They were dis- they were displaced for- by the Allies as well as the Japanese. Um, there's a number who worked for the Japanese because they were the invading army, and so you can't you work with whoever's around. If you don't work with them, they're going to kill you. So you work with them. <laughs> but, I mean, but that's one of those great big gaps in the campaign. And while it's true of Kokoda um, as well as Mumbai, it also applies to. Like, all of New War in New Guinea in many ways. I think we've done a lot of work in telling the Australian story and the New American story, and partly that's just language as well. Um, but there's still things that we don't know. And once we start looking more widely around the experiences of the people in the regions, that's where we really need to be doing more work, whether it be Papuan, um, New Guinean, Solomon Islanders in Guadalcanal and Bougainville, for example, or um, people in Ambon, the Dyaks and Borneo, uh, because once you scratch the surface of the, the war, the Second World War is such a massive effort, and it's not just the Allies, it's not just the Australians, Americans, the Brits. It is the, the peoples of the region have, and their stories have really not been told or acknowledged. Uh, and until we do that, then I think we get a sense of just the, the depth, the variety of experiences, but also the devastation, devastation of the Second World War. Like it was just, it's just vast. It's hard to wrap your head around to be to to really conceptualize uh, the entirety and scope of the the Second World War. Is it's I mean it feels 
people's you know decades of of scholarship and careers entire lives um have been attempted at trying to make sense of what was going on and and um i don't know if anybody's ever actually done it uh, i think it is really really uh telling that it is hard to get japanese perspectives on any of the battles that happened in the pacific um the guadalcanal episode that i talked about it was it was a uh, it was like pulling uh, you know blood from a stone to try and find anything written you know by a japanese soldier because so few of them lived to tell their story and and when they did live then the story was very very heavily edited um afterwards unless it was written you know later uh hiroki yashoda in your in your book um he's got a chapter called japanese commanders in kokoda and there was a passage that just stuck out because it was so um rare to read uh most of the time especially in the US we read about the japanese and this is probably some kind of latent uh racial bias where they were the bad guys a and they also don't speak english and they're not they don't look like us so their story really doesn't matter um or you know not i don't think it doesn't matter but according to some it might not matter but the 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 passage that stuck out to me is he has a uh, This heated exchange uh, I'm quoting here this heated exchange of words followed quote uh Yazawa says attack the enemy Koyawa says I think it would be difficult Yazawa says this is an order Koyawa says no I can't That is so rare to see a human version of a Japanese soldier we so often see them as these automatons of war and bonsai and samurai swords and just charging into machine gun fire um if you could just i know i'm i'm eating up your time but i'd love a little bit of in your uh in your story what or in your experience what do you see um most often with the japanese experience because we really do uh and and once i get into the main episode of the show we'll dive into the the australian experience and it is this horrific uh endurance marathon of of brutality um but the japanese was no less you know their their experience was no less do you see that in your materials do you see the same thing Oh, absolutely. I think if you were to sum up the Japanese experience, particularly from a soldier point of view, it is one of hardship, depredation and death. The we do focus on the Australian experience for a range of obvious reasons. It's there it's us, it's our story, the records, we have the film, Damien Paris film Kokoda Frontline was hugely important in terms of shaping the imagery. Like so this was a film that came out filmed at the time in 1942 and re- released uh, at the end later in the year awarded the academy award that was very important to shape australian and allied understandings of the campaign particularly the conditions and that's what um people really latch onto it's why kokoda is more prevalent say milne bay and i need to give a shout out to milne bay the battle of milne bay which was fought at the same time in the southeast tip of papua but in many ways it's the it's totally the japanese experience is totally different So while I've already mentioned to you about the um the fuzzy wuzzy angels and the carriers for example from the Australian point of view the Japanese experience and motivation was totally different so you have a largely conscript Japanese force um 
both the 144th and the 41st Infantry Regiments were mainly made up of soldiers who'd been conscripted. Uh, many had already fought in China. They'd already fought in the early part. So the 41st Regiment fought in Malaya at the start of the Pacific War. Um, the 144th had taken part in some of the earlier island campaigns seizing um, an island in the Southwest Pacific. So they were already combat experienced. <clears throat> Centre Rabao, then the Santa New Guinea. Now, General Hori, he was a Japanese commander of Southeast Force. When he first got his brief... And he said, all right, we're going to land on the northern tip of Arambuna. We're going to see if we can get across the mountains. Hori was like, I don't think so. I don't think it can be done. Um, so you have the, the initial commander. It's like, uh, maybe not. But he didn't really object strongly enough. He's like, so that while he was reluctant, he then committed his force to doing it. And from the Japanese perspective, the Australians had, we had um, limited intelligence, very poor maps, um, initially, they were just like a sketch outline. That's all we had to go with. We had poor maps. The Japanese, however, had virtually no maps. Um, their way of advancing was really to follow the contacts that they were having with the Australians. So the Australians are shooting at them. So we're going to continue walking. Just go towards yeah, that. Yeah, you, 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 march, you march the drums, march the sound of the guns. Pretty much that's what they're doing. Their point of view is capture that next ridge. Now, if you've seen the silhouette of the Owen Stanley Range, it's just like a zigzag. Unbelievable. So as soon as you take one ridge, you can see, well, there's the next high ground. So they're advancing to the sound of gunfire, to the contacts, and they're always trying to get to the high ground. The disadvantage with the Owen Stanley Range, it's always high ground. So they had to just keep on going (laughs) forward. Um, Their supply lines were the Japanese soldiers themselves only landed with very minimal rations and supplies. So they had something like a week's worth of rations with them in the first place. They weren't able to develop the strong supply lines that the Australian forces were able to do. So while the Japanese did bring with them a um, some conscripted Korean labourers and uh, soldiers from Formosa, as well as a number, like several hundred carriers from Rabao, so um, Solomon Island and men who were rounded up and brought over as carriers. Their numbers are quite small and nothing like what the Australians had with the Papuan carriers. So their supply lines are almost non-existent. As the Japanese keep advancing across the mountains, um, particularly from September and into October, their long supply, their long lines of communications are being harassed by Allied aircraft. They are not getting food, not getting resupplies. They're not really getting much of an a take up of reinforcements. The Japanese are actually a motivation for them to keep going is because once they capture an Australian position, they see if they capture an Australian dump, a supply dump, they get food. So they've got to keep going to get re- their resupply is actually just living off the ground, taking the Australian supply dumps. The Japanese are carrying their wounded with them forward because we're unlike our guys who are, who were then being evacuated with the, you know, the, the Papuan carriers and Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels and stuff. The Japanese are carrying their wounded forward because I think, well, if we just get this up next to that next ridge, then we'll get to Port Moresby. Then we'll get to Port Moresby. So they're moving forward. Um, so not a lot of food, not a lot of resupply, being harassed by Allied aircraft as the campaign goes on. But by the time they get to Iriobiwa, which is their, sort of their southernmost advance, it's said that at night they could see the searchlights um, from Port Moresby. So their destination was almost, they think, almost in reach. Now, what we now know is that even today, it takes about an hour to drive from Port Moresby 
to the base of the Owen Stanley range. And that's, I mean, there's a bit of a highway, but then once you get to Bamana, it's just like a, it's the same road, basically. It's open country. Um, it's a little bit like the, so it's open country in rolling grasslands. There's gum trees. It's So it's a little bit like um, the Australian bush outside of Sydney or Canberra. Uh, and there's parts of in Cal- Southern California that look kind of similar in the countryside. Okay. So had you've gotten a, fan, a force across the mountains, they quite likely would have been shot up by Allied aircraft anyway because there was no air support for the Japanese and there was certainly no tactical air support. Um, they weren't – the soldier, so Hori on the ground wasn't able to coordinate any air support at all in the air cover. So you'd have an infantry force that make its way across the mountains then probably only to be shut up on the grasslands anyway. So it's, it's it, it, it begs the question for and, – and I'm sure you've seen this, but a lot of the Japanese – strategic doctrine or, or strategic um, angles throughout the war. You just wonder why, why there, there seems to be no point or, or I don't know. It's, it, it, it's hard to, again, wrap your head around. Like some of these decisions were just made um, with, and I, I, I feel particularly bad for the Japanese soldier because like in that uh, account in the book is you get a, a sense of an actual person instead of just a, uh, you know, a, a robot. And, and the Kokoda story just fascinates me from that perspective of these guys. Like you, I, I didn't realize you, you, you said they carried their wounded forward. The poor bastard who's got his, lower back shot out and is being dragged all over these mountains just to be sent back is crazy to me. Well, when they had to turn back, it was heartbreaking. And there is a Japanese war correspondent who went with them, and we get this account from him, and he's he describes how with tears in their eyes, they had to abandon their men and then fall back across the mountains. And so General Hori, who was a Japanese commander, he received the order, it looks like twice, to, re- to retreat, or not to retreat, but to advance to the rear. <laughs> to fall back towards Buna. He ignored it the first time, but kept going for another day. But by that point, he's like, okay, we're not going to break through. We're going to have to fall back. Um, and they had to abandon many of the wounded um, or just left to their fate. And so from the latter part of September into early October, as the Australians then moved back across the mountains, now keep in mind, the Japanese actually fight. The main body of the South Seas Force does evacuate back to Buna and the, the beach, or towards the beachheads. Um, but they conduct very successful rearguard actions at Templeton's Crossing and then Yora Creek, where they really stop the Australian advance. But as the Australians are going back across the mountains, um, there are many, many accounts of just seeing Japanese corpses left by the side of the track. So they And they were died from malnutrition, starvation, and disease. The Japanese soldiers themselves are really just based, living on a handful of rice shared between their squad. Um, it's at Yora Creek, for example, once the Australians take that position, that they find the first instances of Japanese uh, cannibalism. So these were Australian soldiers uh, who'd been killed, their bodies had been recovered by the Japanese, and their thighs and buttocks had been cut out and eaten as flesh. Now, that occurs periodically throughout the campaign. You will also see this in Buna later on. Um, in Bougainville in 1945 and as and other parts of New Guinea. It wasn't a systematic approach, but it happens here or there. 
And it's just from total and utter um, desperation. So the the Japanese, and that's as they're finding a way, and that's really on in the piece. It also speaks, the flip side to that is from the Australian perspective, it then motivates them even more to continue fighting against the Japanese. It reinforces that notion of them being um, uh, dehuman, of otherizing them. There's only a very small number of Japanese soldiers who were taken as prisoners during the campaign. Uh, and if you see them, they are emaciated, they're incredibly gaunt. They're not the supermen of, say, February of 1942. Um, by July and August, September, October, they are emaciated and in a very poor condition. And this also happened at Milne Bay, which is fighting um, around the same time in late August, early September. So it's a very the Japanese experience is just horrific, and then once you get into the beachhead battles of Bunrigan and San Ananda, um, they're surrounded. They have the backs to the sea. They're dug in very strong um, fortifications, so you've got um, overhead cover trenches. They use rather than being concrete pillboxes, you've got um, timber pillbox, but very strong fortified positions. Um, but the conditions within that position was horrific. Because the Japanese are suffering large numbers of dead, dying defeat, uh, many Japanese soldiers are actually wearing gas masks or they're found to wear gas masks just from the stench of the dead bodies and the corpses. Oh, um, by that point, there's much more examples of cannibalism, both from um, Japan, well, Australian dead, American dead, as well as some Japanese dead, where the guys are just trying to survive. And it's just absolutely horrific. And you also have that culture for a range of different um, military points of view, the indoctrination and cultural where Japanese soldiers don't surrender in that early 1942, 43 period, partly, you know, and they will, there is any number of accounts of of Australians and Americans approaching wounded Japanese soldiers and Japanese soldiers, you know, just popping up getting off a couple more oh, rounds, yeah. um, detonating grenades, um, faking death to bring in um, assistance to then attack. So by this point, you have a real, I won't say ruthlessness, but certainly very hard Aussie diggers and USGIs because the Americans by this point are coming in, having late landed at Cape in um, on the northern coast around Oro Bay and they're fighting a Booner and Gona as well. So you've got, for the first time, Aussie diggers with your American GIs fighting against the Japanese. Um, but, and while we tend to talk, and we do focus on the Australian experience, from the Japanese perspective, they called New Guinea Hell Island. It was the island of death. A yes. hundred thousand mm-hmm. Japanese soldiers died in New Guinea, like Papua and New Guinea. And most of those men have no known grave. Again, it's it's just beyond comprehension how... Um how four men can live off a couple hands handful of rice and and go through the uh climbing and the all the things that make Kokoda Kokoda in our mind the the experience of the terrain the geography the climate all that are amplified when you consider the Japanese perspective of you know the limited resources the real the no the no real design or point behind what they were doing if they actually you know got back to the beachhead battles at the end and, and realized what was this all about um it, it it does strike me that again here in the US we have this idea of the SS and the German soldiers as these super soldiers and yet by the end of the war you know whole units are surrendering and and putting down their guns and you don't see that with the Japanese even 19 by 1945 you see Japanese soldiers 
very few whole units uh, turned over their weapons and, and, and surrendered. And you saw, again, at Kokoda, it's kind of that just bizarre, bizarre otherworldliness uh, that maybe isn't appropriate to apply in the sense that it makes them different. But uh, from viewing it from the, the distance of time, the Japanese soldiers do seem more otherworldly to me as I research them because I don't understand how they can, I can see how Australians get, are able to deal with what they deal with because they're a hardy people. They seem to be very capable and, and handy. Um, But I can't understand how a a 19 year old kid from Tokyo, downtown Tokyo ends up in uh, the Owen Stanley's eating a handful of rice or maybe his friend's thigh and coming out the other end that just it blows me away it's in yeah it's incredible in terms of what they endured the way they persevered but it's also still a massive contradiction so you've got the the high not highs but the ability to endure just to get on with it because really they didn't have any options but then there's also the other parts of the extreme brutality and violence the um so at milne bay for example the japanese land while we talk about the privations of Kokoda, those soldiers have been in action for weeks, if not months, some of them. You compare yeah. that to the actions that different Japanese units, but they land at Milne Bay in um, the 27th, 26th of August, and they fight through to early September. So that was a, a decisive defeat of the Japanese amphibious landing. Milne Bay is a really key battle. But even there early on, you have a large number. There's a number of Papuans. You made a mention of it earlier, so I've got it circled to make sure that I give due attention to Milne Got to Bay. come back to Milne Bay. Can't forget Milne Bay. <laughs> um, but at Milne Bay, the Japanese capture a number of Australian prisoners who were taken, as well as local Papuans. And they, uh, they're tied up with wire behind their waist. They're tied to coconut trees and they're bayoneted to death and stabbed to death. So it is incredibly brutal in terms of them and this is the start of the campaign where they're basically winning they don't need this type of stuff it's not like they haven't lost yet so you've got the extremes acts of violence um different cultural norms different a military structure large conscript force of young largely young ill i'd say ill-educated but not highly educated soldiers uh and there's just not much else you can do because he had such a, a different military structure the whole thing with the japanese though is it all the Japanese army, tactical, but where is the operational level of consideration and logistics? Like there is just no consideration for logistics at all. The Australian, com- so uh, Brigadier Arnold Potts and then later on Allen, both the div- brigade and the divisional commanders who subsequently sacked during the conduct of during the course of the Kokoda campaign <clears throat> because they're not seen to be aggressive enough. And that's partly because they're building up their supplies, they're building up their supply bases. So like, well, we're not going, <clears throat> we need ammunition, we need food. We have to build up our stores before you want to go on the offensive. Um, but from the Japanese, it's just like, nah, here you go. There's the mountains, go for it. And, and you see this throughout New, the, throughout the New Guinea campaigns, throughout um, fighting in Bougainville in 45, um, the WIWAC. It's just, and elsewhere, like Burma. Like, come on. Like, seriously, where is the, the lack of logistics is just phenomenal. And it's amazing that it continued for so long. It 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 uh, it's why Monty gets such a bad name um, in the U.S. But uh, you know, I'm sure his Australian soldiers loved Montgomery for taking his time to conserve all of his 
resources and supplies, but, you know, Rommel is sexy because he's always running around on his last drop of gasoline, you know, tanks flying through the desert. But uh, it is it is stunning how little time and energy went into Japanese supply and logistics. Like, it's brilliant if it works. You know, if you go and do it the first time and you don't spend anything on it and, it, and it's successful, bully for you. But, man, um, the war would have been different if they had spent even a portion of the uh, time and energy that needed to go into logistics. But anyhow, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rambling here and I've used up more of your time than I already said I would. Uh, Dr. Carl James, the military historian for the Australian War Memorial, author of Kokoda Beyond the Legend. It's on Amazon. It's an excellent read. I'm about three quarters of the way through. Um, it's been a fantastic source. I really, really appreciate it. I want to touch on one quick thing before uh, we go. Is there anything coming up? Um, I know 2020, 2021 was probably, uh, or 2020 was probably a wash. And 2021, we'll see what happens. What's going on uh, for the 80th anniversary of Kokoda, 1942? Anything at the memorial that um, listeners can be, we have a lot of Australian listeners. So anything that they can be, um, uh, looking forward to or anything that we can get involved with from outside of Australia and, and support or uh, what do you guys have coming our way? Yeah, so some of the exciting projects we've got on, exciting for me, is uh, some work with my good friend and colleague Peter Peter Dean. And so we're having an edited volume on Australia uh, during the Second World War on campaign in the home front. And that will come out. So it's an edited volume uh, really looking at Australia's involvement in the war because like one in seven Australians wore a military uniform during the Second World War. Um, half a million Crazy. Australians served overseas and some 40,000 died. So some big military effort. And from a political or social point of view, it's it's a key moment in the Australia's involvement in the 20th century. So that will come out later in 2021. Um, but then as we roll into the series of 80th anniversaries, so for 1941, so this year we've got, um, well, the anniversary of mainland Greece and Crete in May and June. Uh, we have the siege of Tobruk as well as Syria and Lebanon. And then next year, the 42 anniversaries, that will be quite big because without being too macabre, this is the time now, this is this time period when the, the Second World War, the men and women who lived through that conflict, who served, who stood against Hitler, Mussolini and to stop imperialist expansion to Japan, those veterans are now sadly few. And now is the time for us to tell their stories, to acknowledge their service and sacrifice while they're still here with us. If we wait for another five years, it's going to be too late. So we will be doing a lot of things at the memorial to um, commemorative events, webinars, um, special commemorative ceremonies. And the best way to stay involved is really to look at the, you know, check, follow the Australian War Memorial on all the socials. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm often tweeting about Australian military history or museums or, or military history, I should say. Um, check out those platforms, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we're all there and we can work together in building this community looking at, and it's not about glorifying war and it's certainly not about ce celebrating war, um, but really it is a case of us to tell these stories, to ask new questions and to share, like, what did your grandfather do in the war? What did your grandmother do during the war? Let's build these networks and we can use social media as, I believe, um, as a platform to connect and to support each other. Like it's not a game, it's not a competition. Um, we can support each other and to, to get a better understanding of those 
all those men and women who um, made the supreme sacrifice, who endured, who persevered, and helped create a better world, or at least a world they thought would be a better world, um, and that we've inherited. So, yeah, that's what I suggest. Follow social media and just um, be good. Yep. Awesome. Um, I really, really want to thank you, um, Dr. James. This has been awesome. It's been super informative. We'll have a full episode on the uh, Battle of the Kokoda or the Campaign of Kokoda track or trail, whichever you prefer. doesn't really just matter. Kokoda. If you just say Kokoda, yeah, avoids that pitfalls. So hence the Kokoda campaign. I think that's <laughs> what we'll do is we'll just say Kokoda from here on out. Um, that'll be out next week. This conversation um, will be out as well. Thank you again, and uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future. How's the crate doing? We did an episode on the <laughs> oper- on the crate not too long ago, and it, it, it's got a huge following. It's crazy, especially on social media. People love it for some reason. They do. It's one of those real – I have mixed feelings about Operation J-Week, um, but it is a great story of bravery and the fact that these small number of Australians and Brits were able to take a rust – not rusty, but a leaky old – fishing boat from Australia into to Singapore, conduct a raid, which was, from Australia's point of view, really kind of the birth of Australia's special forces or our special forces capability. Um, get back, do it successfully from um, their operational point of view. It's just phenomenal. And that is a, a feat of just, like, just balls, <laughs> to be honest. It's just amazing. All right. Uh, I've, I've, I've stolen too much of your morning. Dr. Carl James... Uh, I want to let the listeners know you are sitting in a car for the last hour doing this podcast with me. Uh, it is a feat of, of endurance of its own kind. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, and we will definitely have you on in the future. Maybe we'll do an episode on Milton Bay um, or some other, definitely Gallipoli at some point down the road. Thank you again, and we'll talk <laughs> to you soon. No worries, man. Thank you for having me.